We have been talking about construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And in particular, in our last episode, we were talking about the difference between what we called good and bad deconstruction. And, and, and what we're talking about here is, you know, is, is there a way to question your faith without losing it in a good way? And no doubt the, the way we think about this is going to be shaped by the goal in mind. For Nije and myself, the goal is to know and be known by God, to, to right. know Jesus, to be faithful to God. That's, that's our goal. I, no doubt somebody listening to this could go, well, you're creating the goal. Um, what about somebody that doesn't have that goal in mind? And that's honestly a different conversation. What we're talking about here is we're talking about how do you faithfully love God through doubt and deconstruction and make it through to the other side. One of the things I've noticed on social media, and I've seen, you know, countless students or parishioners or people that I've I've served who on social media have had this um, almost coming out deconstruction story, this deconversion deconstruction post. Right. And it's ominous how similar they often are. I mean, it's almost like there's a Google Doc somewhere where people are just copying and pasting and putting their name in because they have very similar sentiments, very similar feelings. And one of the the aspects that to me seems to bridge all of them, or at least connect them all on some level, is a deep resentment that they have been a part of a church community that they perceive to have been a part or complicit in some act of injustice. Right. And in most most particular, in the, in the years during President Donald Trump and the years after January 6th, feeling angry that they were a part of an evangelical community that they, they see as having propped up this, uh, this, this president. And so this anger of like, how could I be a part of something that contributed to something not good? And when I see these, 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 these posts, a, a thought generally comes to mind, a, a sort of image in my mind comes to mind. And that is, I don't know if we're deconstructing Christianity or if we're deconstructing fake versions of Christianity. Right. Totally. So a, a way to think about this maybe is my wife and I, and this has become a, a go-to m- metaphor for me. It's really been helpful for me to think about this. Uh, my wife and I grow these Oregon tomatoes. We love tomatoes. Uh, tomatoes are like our fate. I mean, if you're from Oregon, you know exactly what we're talking about. Oregon <laughs> tomato. There's nothing like them. Uh, proof of God, good tomatoes. And when we grow tomatoes in our garden, um, these these proof of God good tomatoes, we'll often have friends over for dinner in the summertime. And from time to time, we'll have somebody that doesn't like tomatoes. And so we'll cut up the tomatoes, but you know, and we'll serve them. And they'll say, well, we don't like tomatoes. <laughs> and and then we'll say, well, you haven't tried our tomatoes. And they'll try our tomatoes and they'll be like, these are tomatoes. And then, and then we'll say yes. And they'll go, I like tomatoes. And all of a sudden they love tomatoes. And what you learn in serving these tomatoes, it's is that People don't hate tomatoes. They hate fake tomatoes. Absolutely. And in people's minds, they've equated fake tomatoes with real tomatoes, having never tasted the real thing. And I I bring the tomato thing up, and I probably droves of people on Twitter who are going to get mad at me for loving my tomatoes as much as I do. And if you don't like tomatoes, then I honestly don't know how to have a conversation with you. (laughs) But I don't think people that are going through deconstruction are always deconstructing Christianity. I think sometimes what we're seeing is actually people desperate for God and Jesus 
And in order to follow Jesus, they have to deconstruct fake Christianity. They have to. It's actually the only way they can save their faith. You know, as a pastor or leader, it's so hard to read those Facebook and Twitter posts. It's so hard. Instagram updates of deconversion, it's so hard. But I need to be slow to assume that people are deconstructing the true faith. Maybe they're deconstructing because they're really hungry for God. Yeah. Well, I love the tomato illustration. I've heard you use that one before, and it's helpful because, um, you know, I'll have students, especially when I taught undergraduate, who would say, I don't like Christians. I don't like church. And what they really mean is they don't like the churches they visited. They don't like the Christians they've encountered. And I found that um, recognizing Christianity as a global religion really helps. I've spent some missionary time in Eastern Europe. I've, I've, you know, been to India and some other places, Guatemala. And when you see Christians in a completely different cultural context, especially a non, uh, non-wealthy context, mm-hmm. you see a different form of Christianity, honestly. Yeah. Um, our Christianity here, you know, actually the difference between Portland and nor- in rural Ohio is, is drastically different. And uh, I've noticed that when youth, especially or college students, go on a missions trip overseas to a completely different cultural context, they say Christian Christianity looks a little bit different here. Yep. And it can be really refreshing for them to realize that, you know, what they've been wounded by, what they have been disappointed with is um, just kind of like what you've been saying. It's a kind of counterfeit form yeah. Yeah. of Christianity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when, when somebody says, I don't, I, you know, I've deconstructing Christianity, I want to say, are you talking about the Christianity of the poor in the slum? Yeah. Are you talking about the Christianity of the black church down the street that honestly finds their only hope in the gospel? Mm. Are you are you talking about the Christianity of the 15 people in that huge town in Tunisia who are the only Christians in an entire Muslim country and that's their one hope? Are you saying that that Christianity is the Christianity that you don't like? And I agree with you. More often than not, what we're saying is we're saying we're fed up with sort of our uh, our, our 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 white American version of Christianity, you and you hear this all the time, Nije. You you there's a subtle racism in in our even our language around around the church. For example, when you hear somebody say the church is dying, right? The church is dying, and and when they say that, of course, they are just speaking about Western um, Western Christianity, right? And but but what they've subtly done and they don't realize it is they've equated Christianity with Western Christianity, right. failing to recognize that this is a global church. If 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 you care for the poor but hate Christianity, you are hating the faith of the poor. Right. So I mean, you can I, I am all I'm stand I stand arm to arm with the person who looks at American Christianity and has problems. But if you are talking about the faith of the poor in the slum, if you're talking about the faith of those 15 Christians in Tunisia, if you're talking about the faith of Martin Luther King Jr. who did what he did because of his love for Jesus, I don't stand with you. Because that Christianity, that form of of following Jesus, friends, you can't encounter that and tell me there's no life in it. Right. You can't. You know, Nijay, deconstruction is interesting because— Jesus did it. I mean, we we look at, for example, the, the Sermon on the Mount, that great 
uh, ethical teaching, the three chapters in Matthew 5, 7, and 8, 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus lays out these awe-inspiring ethical ways of life that we are called to, um, that none of us can do. I mean, it, it is the kingdom life is way beyond any of us. You know, we'll never be able to do it. But that doesn't mean we don't try. And in the middle of it, time and time and time again, you see Jesus do this very interesting linguistic move. He he says, you know, you've heard it said in the past, dot, 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 dot. But now I say to you, right. dot, 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 dot. Now, you, you kind of have to have a little help to understand what's going on there. What Jesus is doing is he is critiquing and and undoing years of wrong religious interpretation on the Old Testament. Absolutely. What he's doing is deconstructing. But here's what's interesting. He's not deconstructing the Bible. He is deconstructing bad interpretations exactly. of the Bible. Yep. And what we often don't understand is the difference between deconstructing bad Christianity and deconstructing real Christianity. Mm-hmm. Did you agree with that? Yeah. One of my students um, saw a meme floating around online that said, and I was teaching her hermeneutics class at the time, which means the philosophy interpretation. And it the meme had said, um, if there's a disagreement between uh, if there's a discrepancy between Jesus and the Old Testament, Jesus wins, is what it said. <laughs> and then my student, knowing what I would say, she kind of forwarded this to me and said, what do you think? And I said, it's a false understanding Absolutely. to think that tensions are bad. And, um, and, and you know, I, I completely agree with you. Jesus is not upending the Old Testament. He's not throwing it out. He's not creating something brand new. He's basically saying, you idiots, you've gotten this wrong because of your hard hearts. And he's giving them kind of a a sharper, clearer picture of what this was all about from the beginning. Yeah, and guarded scripture. I mean, if we're going to say Jesus was sort of the social revolutionary who was just chucking tradition, we're not not reading Jesus properly. He, I mean, when he says things like, if you— if if you don't do the law and tell others not to, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus really, his life was based on this text. He cared about this so deeply. And often what we do is we deconstruct the Bible when we come apart parts where there is tension. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, so Matt, my friend Matthew Sleeth, um, who, who writes about Sabbath, pointed this out to me. He, uh, His wife, Nancy, uh, uh, Nancy Sleeth, uh, is, is a, Jew, a Jewish Christian. And she says, you know, when you read, for example, Genesis 1, 28, 27 to 28, where the very beginning of the Bible says, where God says, let us make man in our image, right? Well, for the original audience, for the writers of that text, they were Jews. They believed right. in one God, monotheists. They, they believed in one God. Uh, there was no us. There was no we. It was one. And Matthew pointed out to me that when you read the rabbis on that language of let us, I mean, if you believe in one God and you see let us make man, you, you're like, what do I do with that? And he pointed out to me that when you read the rabbis, the rabbis had no idea how to handle those texts, but they kept them in. Right. And they protected them. And they fought for it, even though they didn't understand it. What we often do is we come apart parts, come to parts of the Bible that we don't like, and we we undo it and say, that doesn't count for today. That doesn't matter today. That doesn't matter here. That doesn't matter there. And in essence, what we're doing is we're saying, I'll love the Bible as long as it makes sense to me. But as you say, tension is actually sometimes a sign of fidelity, like that you're being faithful to God in the tension. For sure. And, you know, I'd like to pick up the rabbinics again because it's kind of fun. I'll give you another fun example. So 
the Nephilim are these kind of giant monsters, and they appear before uh, the flood, but then they also appear in the text after the flood. And I don't think I noticed this until it was pointed out to me that the rabbinic, uh, uh, you know, interpreters and debaters, they, I remember one of them saying, maybe they rode on the roof there you go. <laughs> of the ark. <laughs> but you're right. They leave it in there. And actually, the rabbinic way of interpretation is dialogue. Mm-hmm. They say, Rabbi so-and-so says, then Rabbi so-and-so says. And they go back and forth, and it's not really always resolved. Um, and I think our faith can be like that. I, I want to go back to something I think I said last time that um, our our faith isn't in having all the answers. In fact, our faith is hindered if we feel like we do have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Faith is that walking step by step. And, you know, if I was talking to an unbeliever or someone who's left the faith, I would want to say um, something that goes back you know, at least to Blaise Pascal, you know, Pascal's wager. Um, it's a choice to move your life in a certain direction. Mm. You gotta, you know, I love the quote from Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying. Mm. You gotta point your life in a direction. So for the deconstructors, I want to ask them, are the people that left the faith or the people who just write off Christianity? I want to say, uh, you know, I'm going to quote another CCM band here, Switchfoot. <laughs> this is your life. Are you who you want to be? And for those people who just really feel empowered by uh, kind of this napalm deconstruction, mm. I want to say, but which direction is your life going in now? And mm. and for those who are trying to get their life back on a path of following God, I want to take you back to some of the challenges the early church faced, especially in the second and third century. They were struggling with the fact that even though now they had a set of scriptural texts, people were using that to do all kinds of bad stuff. You had uh, Gnostics and you had dualists and you had all sorts of stuff. And so there came to be something the church called a rule of faith. The rule of faith is this idea that there should be some grid or motto or framework that helps us make sure we're pointing our use of scripture in the right direction. And even though no one sat down and wrote it out in a way that we just receive it, we kind of receive it through the Apostles' Creed, I feel like the classic rule of faith that we receive from St. Augustine is Scripture and the Christian faith pointed in the right direction should lead us to love of God and love of neighbor. Mm -hmm. That's classic Augustine. It it goes back even further to the Apostles. And I would want to say, if if the interpretation framework that your church uses or that you know your favorite Christian writer uses doesn't point to love of God, love a neighbor, then that is something to deconstruct. Mm. That's when you need mm. some good, healthy deconstruction going on. It, it you know it's not just a matter of just you know I, I, when you were talking about Jesus deconstructing in Matthew five, I was thinking of the devil mm. using scripture in Matthew four. Mm. Yeah, right. And. Why didn't Jesus just go along with, oh, the devil's quoting scripture, surely he must be a good Christian? People can use scripture to do all kinds of terrible things. Yeah. They have before. Hitler used the Bible. Um, people use the Bible for all kinds of purposes. But if we have a rule of faith that points us in a certain direction, um, I feel like we can live with a lot of unknowns yeah. in our life. Yeah. You talk about the the devil in Matthew 4 
which which I've always I've always connected obviously to the Garden of Eden Genesis three story. Mm-hmm. You have these two these two moments of temptation where uh, the man and the woman are tempted uh, in in Genesis three, and then Jesus is tempted in Matthew four. And in both occasions, you have the same thing happening, which is uh, in Matthew four. Uh, the serpent quotes scripture to Je- Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, but interestingly enough, leaves a line out of the, the text. One of one of the particular texts he's quoting, he leaves a whole line out. And then when you go back to Genesis three, um, when the serpent says to God, "Really say you must not eat from any of the trees," and she says, uh, "We're not supposed to eat from this one tree, nor are we to touch it." She adds mm-hmm. to the text, and I just find it interesting that it, that wherever the serpent is tempting, scripture has not been guarded. Right. It is being tinkered with. It is being messed with. The ancient boundary stones have been have been moved in essence. And you know, the, I think the darkest element of this. I I, I think about, for example, you know, the darkest expression of this um, are in the early American uh, the early American years when 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 slavery was a, a commonplace practice. Um, the white slave owners had a problem. They loved the Bible because when the slaves read the Bible, they kept working really hard. Mm-hmm. They loved that. They they loved that the slaves were inspired. But they really were frustrated by these pesky parts of the Bible, like the book of Exodus, that were about the freedom of the slaves. And so what did the slave owners do? They literally created their own Bible called Slave Bibles that cut out the whole book of Exodus. And they handed a redacted, deconstructed version of the Bible as a point of privilege and as a point of, of control. And even in that dimension, right, you've got a manipulated Bible to manipulate people. When I was doing my PhD program, I, one of my uh, coworkers uh, was a guy studying uh, decolonization and uh, and the way we read the Bible. And how do you read the Bible in a, in a non-colonial sort of way? And he made he made a comment that I, I wrote down years ago. He said uh, he said a a an enslaved Bible will always enslave someone. Yeah, and it is the whole Bible that brings freedom and truth and life. And, you know, the, the slaves didn't go free because people stopped reading the Bible. The slaves went free because people finally started reading the Bible. Right. And the whole Bible is what we need. We don't need just a book that inspires slaves. We need a book that says to the slaves, God wants you to go free. We need the whole thing. And that's why deconstruction can so easily become privilege. Is it is is that we are just recreating Christianity as a means to prop up what we're already doing? And boy, oh boy, is that dangerous. And this is where we can talk about what sometimes scholars call a canon within a canon. Mm. So this is where, like your preacher or your your favorite Bible teachers, um, they fixate on one part of Scripture as the most important: Romans, Matthew, John, whatever it is revelation for some and they ignore other parts and you know because that you know those parts like galatians or whatever fits their personal preferences the best but then you're leaving out all kinds of other stuff and this is part of the reason luther preferred galatians over james he felt like galatians had the doctrine that most centered on christ but james is there for a reason james balances us out i remember telling my students you know, let's say James's message is rich people be damned. How are you going to preach that in church? <laughs> you know, texts like that make us very uncomfortable. They're very hard. You're a preacher, AJ, you know, they're very hard to preach, but they're there. Mm-hmm. So part, I think, of the journey of this messiness of faith is making sure we're not stuck in the same one or two favorite verses or texts, 
for, that we're reading across this whole Bible that's so rich and diverse as a kind of library of books. And it'll prevent us from getting bogged down into just one one-dimensional Christian faith. I think yeah. just reading one part of the Bible will get us stuck in a one-dimensional Christian faith. Yeah, it's the trail mix principle. Whenever we get trail mix, I do the same thing every time. I just pick out the M&Ms. I mean, that's the <laughs> classic, you know, uh, hermeneutical, exegetical approach is that we all love to eat the sweet stuff, right. but not have to eat the hard things. But I, I, Tim Keller, I love his line. He says, why do we read the whole Bible? Because it's there. Yeah. It's worthy to be read. God, God, God gave this this whole thing to us for for us to have. Let's talk. Can we can we talk about reconstruction? Because yeah. you know we we've okay. I think we've deconstructed deconstruction a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Let's let's start talking now about okay. What does reconstruction look like as you think about it, Nije? Um, you've got construction, the sort of initial stage of faith, the deep faith deconstruction, which is kind of questioning some things. What is reconstruction? If you summed it up for us. What is this period of reconstruction that one might go through? I'm glad you asked because I prepared a quote for today, but uh, you're the expert, so I'll be kicking it back to you. But this quote I found about four or five years ago, I've used it in Bible classes. It stuck with me because I end up teaching these Bible classes that overwhelm students with academic information. Uh, But this comes from Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he says, I don't care at all about simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for simplicity on the far Mm. side of complexity. Mm. So I feel like this narrates that journey where simplicity on this side of complexity is naive construction. And then deconstruction is the complexity. And it's a good thing because life is complex. But then we have to go to that next step, and many people don't. We have to go to that next step of seeking simplicity on the far side of complexity. And I think part of that is really a matter of evaluating our actual relationship with God. Not just your relationship with your church, even though church is important. Not just your relationship with other Christians. Not just relationship with your youth pastor from back in the day. But your actual relationship with God, I mean, if, if you're alone with God, is there a real relationship there? I mean, I, th- I think it really comes down to that. I think we make it about all the bad or good things that other people have done. But the essence of Christianity is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and really saying, when I, when I re- for me, when I read the Gospels, I see a Jesus who knows me and loves me, mm-hmm. who calls me by name. And there's lots of things that I've learned that I have no idea how to resolve, tensions and all that. But it comes down to what I know in my mind and my heart that this Jesus person knows me and loves me. He is for me. Mm. Um, that That's the beginning place. Because I feel like you'll have all these people who gave up on the Christian faith or kind of feeling like they're giving up. And they don't know where to start. How do I find my way back? It's kind of like you're feeling around in the dark. Yeah. And I would just say, number one, sit down with the Gospels and rediscover the beautiful person of Jesus. But more importantly, beyond that, to pray, to pray to God and talk to God. I feel like our deconstruction happens without talking to God. We're just, you know, demolishing things. The reconstruction happens when we actually turn to God and just confess 
not even sins, but just confessing, listen, these are the issues and questions I have. This is really hard for me. I honestly, and I think you've already mentioned this with C.S. Lewis, deconstruction is a process of grief. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't usually address the emotional dynamics of that grief. We just find, often we find a community that can be angry in the way that we're angry and can make us feel good about, you know, complaining about certain things that aren't good. And we don't actually address the bereavement or yes. the grief or the or the hurt. Yes. So I think that that is a good place to start as well. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know where else to go from there, but I, I'm hoping you can you can guide us a bit. Well, you're you're getting into. I mean, you're you're dipping our toes in the water here of the practices of reconstruction, which I know a listener is okay. I, how, okay, how? Like I I'm I'm in the middle of this. Like, what do I need to do? Um, you named one. You named confession. Mm. I think actually, so so the idea of confession, right? The Greek word homologo to to agree to say the same thing. Um, the idea of confession. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sitting with a New Testament scholar here, but it's not telling God something he doesn't know. Right. It's actually telling something he already knows. It's it's like it's like naming something that's in the room and you know it's there. You yep. just are putting it out there and Absolutely. letting it be known. And when we express to God our doubts, he's not rocked. Like he he's not he doesn't start having an existential crisis like holy moly Nije doesn't think that way about me anymore <laughs> to say nothing of the fact that there has never been a point in our lives when god has finished a conversation with us and walked away more informed about anything like god knows what we pray before we pray it he's not interested in new information he's interested in in deep face-to-face relationship confessing to god Jamie Winship was one of my favorite preachers. He says, confession is simply telling God what is true. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is just saying it. And I got to say, the power of reading the Psalms and hearing David say to God, I don't get you. I'm mad at you. Yeah. I'm surrounded by the, the cows of Bashan. I don't get you, but I love you. I mean, it's almost like we have an inspired book that's intended to invite us to do that, right? Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Psalms because I think people sometimes forget that the Bible is excruciatingly honest with how much life sucks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and how much disappointment exists in life, lamentations as well. You have moments in the Gospels where Jesus is grieving. Um, you have him distraught over a variety of incidents in the world. Um, and so I, I think spending some time in lament is helpful. We talked about Bonhoeffer before. I'd say it might be a good exercise to read some of his letters and papers from prison just to remember yeah. that there are great Christians who have gone through long periods of agony, grief, lament, and... Um, and yet they don't they don't lose their hope in God. Yeah. Uh, it's just like you said, they're willing to be honest. Yeah. Um, and and I hope we can have churches that can. One of my students once said, "Midwife people's grief, mm-hmm. uh, midwife their their lament." Um, and I think you know y- you've been a you've been a full time pastor. Um, there 
there aren't too many churches that welcome the doubters mm-hmm. because I feel like sometimes churches and pastors can be afraid that it'll kind of maybe sour the water or mm-hmm. it'll it'll create a negative environment. Can 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 this transition from doubt to reconstruction in a, in a sensitive environment can that happen in the church? Hundred percent. Because I feel like I feel like people go to seminary sometimes because the church isn't a safe place for the doubt. Yeah. And so we we take we take our questions to the seminary and then we we find a community of people struggling with it there and then essentially re, re we essentially trade in the church and right. trade it for other environments. Yeah, look at so for example, um in the Thomas narrative in in John 19 Thomas does not believe in the resurrection. He can't believe it. It's just too much. He says, you know, I, I'll believe as long as I can touch his, the holes yeah. in his side, the holes in his hand, this sort of, sort, of, sort of thing. And the other disciples say, no, 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 he, it, it happened. And and I, lo- I love the way John narrates it. <laughs> Jesus doesn't actually show up for a week <laughs> to show him his resurrected body. Right. Uh, he lets him just stew, which is a word Dallas Willard uses on the text. He lets Thomas stew for a week. Yeah. He doesn't rush in to fix it. He allows him to struggle with it. But then he sees the resurrection. He sees the resurrected king. Here's what, what I think that speaks to us. Is that when you're blind, you need a community around you who can see. Yeah. And the, it, this sounds a little, a little focus on the family. But we do become the people we listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, we... If you spend all of your time listening to podcasts that emphasize deconstructing Christianity, guess what you'll do? Yeah. If you spend all of your time filling your mind and your heart with all the reasons why you should do away with Christianity, guess what you'll do? It actually turns out sociology has a point that we do reflect the people we surround ourselves with. And having a resurrection community that can point us to Jesus is really important. But even Paul's language, the book of Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. That implies, it implies there are doubters in the church. Right. When Paul writes, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, it implies it's communities of people that are rejoicing and, and weeping together. Yeah. You know, we have now gotten to the point where you have conservative evangelical churches where you go to be really happy and you've got Progressive mainline churches where you go to deconstruct and be sad mm-hmm. and lament. And it grieves God's heart because God wants us to live in a community where weepers and rejoicers, where doubters and the faithful walk hand in hand together. As you know, Hebrews 1, let us move on to maturity. Us, we, us, right. we can't go alone. For God's sake, this is a podcast. But for God's sake, don't replace a community of flesh and blood on the ground with a podcast. (laughs) Right. For God's sake, don't do it. Because you need a community that will actually show up when you're in the hospital, that will actually look you in the face, whose breath you can actually smell. Don't replace the church with a podcast. Yeah. As you're talking, it makes me think, too, that— I think for a lot of those early Christians who struggle with doubt, their church was still their family. You know, one of the first 
terms used of Christians is Adelphoi, my brothers and sisters, as Paul calls them. They were a family and they needed each other. They looked after each other. You mentioned the church being a safe place for doubters uh, back in the early church too. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians to the church at large, not just to the leaders, uh, encourage the oligopsuchas, the hmm. meager in soul, which is kind of the uh, crestfallen or the discouraged. Hmm. So there are discouraged. Uh, there are people, so, some people in that church in Thessalonica had died, Christians had died. They're beginning to, to lose their faith in God, wonder about God, some of them. And Paul tells the church, buoy them, help them, lift hmm. them up, hmm. care for them, hmm. minister to them. Maybe this is, you know, podcast is a call not just to the doubters, but to those surrounding doubters um, to say, buoy them, support mm-hmm. them, love them, show them great kindness. Yeah. I, the, this student come to me uh, uh, who's wrestling with questions around sexuality, and I asked her why she was coming to me to talk about it. And she said, uh, you know, I'm wrestling with this question. And she goes, but and the reason I'm coming to you, her, her parents are pastors. Um, she, she said, I'm coming to you because— when my when I talk to my parents about it, they just send me a YouTube clip. Yeah. Um, and she said, she goes, my parents don't get it. I'm not looking for a YouTube clip. I'm looking for someone to be my friend. Yeah. For the person walking through doubt, you don't need somebody to hand you a copy of After Doubt. <laughs> you don't need somebody to hand you a podcast. You don't need somebody to hand you a YouTube clip. What you're more often than not looking for is you're looking for somebody to be in the foxhole with you, yeah. to weep with you and grieve with you. And, you know, the, the podcast, they can be so helpful. Don't miss, this is a stinky podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but for those walking through doubt and deconstruction, more often than not, it's not an itch of the mind. It's an itch of the heart. That we are looking for a connectivity with someone else that can see us. That's what we're all looking for. Mm. We are looking for a God who sees us. I honestly don't even need all the answers, but I want to know God sees me. You know, I feel like so many people wrestle with doubt by themselves. Yes. It's, I'm not going to say it's shaming, but it's hard to know who to turn to. You end up reading books and things because it's private. You end up listening to podcasts because you have questions. But it's important to sit down with somebody you trust, especially somebody who is positive towards their faith, and say, how do you deal with this? In fact, one of the reasons that AJ and I wanted to do this podcast was so we could have guests on and talk to some of our heroes, some of our colleagues, and say, you've been through tough stuff, yet you still love Jesus. How does that happen? Because I feel like when we do that, we normalize the difficulty and challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, just in our last few seconds here, AJ, um, what is a first step people can do who feel like they're done? Okay, I, I was done with the Christian faith. Yeah. I left. I'm listening to this podcast because someone recommended it or I happened upon it or I saw a picture of Nije and he's so handsome. Yeah. But you know, what do you do if someone's a done and they said, okay, how do I take the baby step? What's the first step? Yeah. My gut tells me that for the, the person who is done, they, they may say they're done. My, my gut tells me that the person, they, they may say they're done. But when they put their head on their pillow at night and they lay down and they really get thinking about it, 
there was a moment that they remember. It might have been when they were a kid. It might have been when they were in high school. I don't know. But there's a moment they remember where it was it was like God was right next to them. They knew God. Um, one of the parishioners that I, I used to pastor said that she has this memory of being a 16-year-old when she first met Jesus. She said, it felt like I was in the backyard with God in a hammock. And she describes just, this, she remembers her first love. You know, you remember your first love. Yeah. And for the person who's done, I just want to invite you. Do you remember that? Like, do you remember a moment where God was so near? And I think I would invite, I would invite the person to just to say, I want that again. Yeah. And I know that again, I, I, I'm not intending to convert or, but there's power in naming a desire. And if you long for that intimacy that you once have with God, I think God responds to that. Yeah. And just name it and say, like, God, I remember being in the hammock with you and I miss it. And I want to know you again. And that simple confession is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'd say. Great. Well, uh, we're at the end of our time, but um, we have really uh, enjoyed having this conversation. We hope you guys have too. Uh, and stay tuned for more.